Hey you, welcome to Above the JPEG, the place where you can find the latest NFT trends and the most reliable NFT information for entrepreneurs and investors. This is Kango Lin, your host. And this week we have What Week Paul, which is the founder at Smart Train Network, a layer one solution. And he also partnered with the Australian government on shipping all the Australian beefs to China on the blockchain. There's some really amazing stuff that he's done with the, the blockchain and the NFTs. So, you know, today I'm gonna ask him all about it. And this is really, really solid use cases. So stick around and learn what's possible. Do it in your country. Who knows? You might be the next one. How are you? Warwick. It's Warwick. What's going on, man? How you doing? Are you in Australia? I am in Australia. I'm in Brisbane on the East Coast, and um, and it's winter here. So. Welcome to the show, Warwick. Welcome to the show. Welcome to about the JPEG, man. Yeah, great to great to be there virtually. Yeah. So, so Warwick, I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting for this interview for a long time. I just, dude, ever since we met in Austin, I have been a such huge fan of yours and your work in blockchain. So today. We're going to show the people all of what you're doing with our audience. And just honestly, for me personally, I want to learn from you. I want to learn what you're thinking so that young folks like us who are listening to the show will be able to learn the thought process and learn what's working, what's not working. So starting off, sir, I'd love to get a little introduction from you because you're everywhere i saw you on australian national tv i saw you in china right so in politic you're everywhere sir so tell us a little bit about you well after you've been around for a little while you can be everywhere um being everywhere is just a function of time um look i i'm based in australia these days i've been in australia for 46 years um i first came from hong kong and I did all of my schooling in Australia. I went to eight different schools actually um, during my schooling here, which meant that I traveled a lot across a very big continent and lived in small communities, big communities, urban areas, rural areas. And I think that that gave me a couple of uh, perspectives on the world. One was that the world's a big place because I was a migrant to start with. So. Um, so I appreciated the fact that the world um, can be connected um, by air travel and trade and all those sorts of things. The second thing is that it gave me a very clear sense that um, uh, the way that, well, and I only knew this as I got older and reflected upon these experiences, but uh, that the connections between cities and the hinterlands and the rural areas of uh, our economies is actually a really important set of linkages and those linkages are usually underappreciated which has led to over time um, challenges in regional economies you know outside of capital cities which I think um, are both unfortunate but also things that we can do something about and need to do something about and we've seen the consequences of not doing something about that uh, impact communities across the world. So whether it's Australia or North America um, or throughout Europe, smaller regional communities have experienced significant economic challenges over the last 30 years to a point where some of those 
um, have hollowed out where people have left them um, or where there are no longer viable economies in these communities and people are now surviving on one kind of welfare or another. And all of this is avoidable. So that was another lesson that I learned, you know, through um, going to all these different schools throughout, you know, my time. And I think the third thing really is that by virtue of traveling so much, um, I came to be comfortable with the need to be able to adapt to different environments and to um, work with people from different places, different walks of life and different perspectives. And that's important because ultimately um, being able to find common ground, even though there are many things that people have different perspectives on is a good starting point to being able to get along and getting along seems to me to be better than not getting along. You know, not getting along is an expensive um, <laughs> way of, 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 you know, living in the world. Um, yep. It means that you deny yourself access to lots of things, lots of opportunities, um, ways of learning, access to, you know, more economic or more efficient production systems um, or what, what have you. Um, and, uh, but, uh, you know, right down to then, you know, putting a lot of effort and resources into fighting and fighting is, is very draining, you know, it's, it's much easier to not do that. So, um, so yeah, that's that, that, that sort of ended up um, with me doing work in regional economic systems and ultimately into distributed ledgers. So that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing at the moment. So, so, so the uh, experience, the, I know you learned a lot about economy back in um, the academic days, and then you moved towards, uh, I believe it was uh, uh, in the political world, right? And then you, is, is it right? You went, went from yeah, the look, academic I, to political and then business. Look, most of, look, most of these um, uh, stages um, have been partly accidental. You know, you stumble into things um, because you're pursuing an interest or a passion. Um, and uh, I actually started my working life uh, with a view of becoming an academic. And I was completing a, uh, my PhD, my doctorate, and, yep. uh, and, one, and, and doing some sessional teaching at university. And one late night, probably around 3 a.m. in the morning, I was <laughs> um, marking, marking a big pile of exam papers and they were all handwritten, right? Handwritten in pencil usually. And I decided that this was not something I wanted to do. Um, you know, the idea of spending a lot of my life marking handwritten exam papers <laughs> seemed crazy to me. And how old and, are you? <laughs> I'm 52 now. I mean, how um, old were so you? Was, my bad. I was 21, 20, 21, 21. My age. So, yeah. You're already a professor my age. No, but, but I was tutoring. So I was lecturing and tutoring. Um, and, uh, and at that time, I'd been offered an opportunity to work for um, uh, the Director General of the Office of the Cabinet in the Queensland State Government. So the Director General of the Office of the Cabinet is the Chief Executive, basically, of the Coordination Department of all of government in my state, Queensland. Laser so, Prime Minister. Well, yeah, and the, <laughs> the Director General was a guy called Kevin Rudd, um, and Kevin became Australia's Prime Minister some years later. Wow. So, wow. 
um, I, I'd been offered an opportunity to work for Kevin a couple of times prior to eventually um, grabbing that um, opportunity and um, and throwing myself into what became 80 to 90 hour weeks, um, doing a, a myriad of things in government, touching on all sorts of diverse areas of public policy concern from education and training policy through to dealing with closure of meat works, wow. um, social, economic, legal policy issues. But probably one of the defining projects I worked on when I worked for Kevin was on a project that was called something like uh, the National Strategy for the Teaching of Asian Languages and Cultures in Australian Schools. So this was in 1992-93 and the national government and all the state and territory governments of Australia agreed that a report needed to be prepared concerning education and training on Asian languages and cultures. <clears throat> and Queensland um, was uh, delegated the task of putting that together and that fell specifically to um, Kevin um, and Kevin assembled a team of people to um, oh, support him in the research and in the drafting you of were the expert. well I was just part of the research team at the time I was just a young guy and um, but the the result of that work uh, was a confirmation that Australia's future economically and security-wise, as a result, lay in Asia. Australia, as a big continent with a small population in the Asia-Pacific, had to find a future that was heavily connected to what was going on in Asia, number one. Number two, to make that reality, Australia needed to develop a skills base that was knowledgeable about Asia. And that meant a focus on languages and cultures education from a very young age. Interesting. So the strategy identified four main countries for the purposes of implementing this strategic approach, which was China, Japan, Republic of Korea and Indonesia. And so four core languages were therefore identified, Chinese Mandarin, Japanese, Korean, and Bahasa Indonesian as part of this strategy. And every state and the Commonwealth government committed to funding this strategy to make learning these languages mandatory for Australian oh, school children from the age of, from memory, nine years and up. So the idea oh, was wow. that after after 20 odd years, Australia would have a significant cohort of people in their mid twenties through to mid thirties who would have deep Asian literacy, culturally right. and linguistically. Now- That's that amazing. Policy, I mean, uh, yeah, so, so look, that's, that was probably the defining uh, experience that I had in that space. I then moved from there to uh, working in the Mines and Energy Minister's office where um, I was exposed to uh, the mining industry um, and Queensland is a state that has significant oh, mining wow. resources, um, both in terms of the metalliferous mining sector, 
um, particularly um, lead, zinc, copper, um, a bit of cobalt, sand, um, silica, and those sorts of things, um, then, all the way through to, to coal. So I was quite exposed um, to dynamics within that sector and then into the energy industry when uh, the Australia went through a big process of reforming the energy supply system across the country, which until then was very much driven by publicly owned utilities. Um, but uh, in the mid nineties onwards, Australia progressively introduced uh, more explicit market mechanisms and yeah. corporatization of the energy supply sector. And I was involved in the early days of the thinking around market designs um, and that sort of stuff. And all of those things that I sort of was exposed to back then have actually become quite pivotal when you move into the blockchain distributed space right. because market designs, game theory, mechanism design, and all those things are actually key. It all ties back to, to the blockchain, you know? I mean, I mean blockchain is not new. Information systems. Yeah. That's right. You know, I, I, as, as I interview a lot of folks on this podcast, I realized that the blockchain and every innovation that comes out of the blockchain isn't standalone new innovation, right? Blockchain is great and everything, but it requires so much background in whatever people are trying to improve and innovate with the blockchain technology. And I think that's one thing that you've done extremely well, sir. Um, you know, talking about talking about some of some of the very, very notable and prominent projects that you worked on. Oh my gosh, Smart Train Network and Beef Ledger. We gotta talk about them. And sure. uh, I just flew to California, but in, in my house in Austin, I have a chocolate that has the tracking from Smart Train Network, which is your layer one platform. Yeah. So we yeah. gotta talk about that, right? So Smart Train Network, sir. Yeah, Smart Trade Networks is a project that um, has uh, emerged from about 2016. And it came about because um, I was involved in cross-border trade in, um, in food systems mainly. And we kept coming across two problems. One was product authentication. So there was a lot of product fraud. And the other one was uh, supply chain payments. So supply chain payments were very lumpy um, and they were sporadic and there were always friction and problems. And to keep supply chains going, uh, the participants in those supply chains had to basically get supply chain finance. And supply chain finance is often very expensive. Um, you know, if you're uh, financing livestock, you're paying up to, you know, between 11 and 12%. Um, small business finance for factoring was anywhere up to 18% interest. So, so it was a very significant and costly way of keeping a supply chain going. Now, these two problems, which is the payments problem and supply chain finance on the one hand and product authentication on the other, were usually dealt with by two very different types of people. So the product fraud problem was dealt with by inspectors, customs, scientific labs, police, That's right. and all that type of stuff, right? That was the one thing. On the other hand, the payment stuff was dealt with by financial engineers and financial products manufacturers. Now, come 2016 or so, I really thought that these two problems were actually two sides of the same coin and that smart contracts um, deployed on distributed ledgers mm. could, in theory, 
resolve these two issues at the same time. And the, the way that I often describe supply chains is that um, in one way, they're really um, circuits of information flow or circuits of data flow where information about products and, and, and processes flows mainly in one direction. Um, and when that information satisfies the requirements of the, the buyer or the finance provider, the money data flows in the other direction. Okay, so these right. two bits of data are actually fundamentally connected. So if we can resolve data integrity and product integrity on the one hand, then the money should flow quite easily on the other hand. So that was how I started in this um, space back in 2016. And in 2017, we launched the explicit project to apply some of our early days thinking in the beef supply chain. And we did that largely by accident because we were already doing some things in that supply chain, but also because we took the view that the beef supply chain was very fundamental to the lives of lots of people. So it was going to have some impact, but it was also complex. And complex for us was good for two reasons. One was that it allowed us to learn lots of things. And two, it meant that uh, there was a lot of barriers to entry, which meant that we probably didn't have to rush so much. So we could take some time in figuring out some of the issues involved. And you guys and, were co-founding this with the Australian government, right? Yeah. So we kicked off a project and became participants in um, in a cooperative research centre. So the cooperative research centre, or CRCs, as we call them, is a scheme that is run by the Commonwealth government, the Australian government, together with universities and industries. And the idea is to bring resources from government, universities and industry together to undertake cutting edge research and development. And that's what we did. So we kicked off a project um, called Export Smart Contracts, I think, um, which was focused around this question of addressing cross-border payments using smart contracts. Um, now, all of that sounded easy. And of course, when we first started, I think we uh, assumed that uh, there was maturity in technology and that we mm -hmm. would be able to execute you know, incredibly quickly. The reality Everybody is coming into blockchain for the first time thought that I yeah. think even today, there's more and more youngsters like us coming in and encounters say nation. And it's, it's of course, nowhere near as mature. There are lots of issues um, and, uh, and they're complex things. So, you know, the, the work that, you know, I, I often joke and say that my working assumption was that I'd finish this project in six months and move on. Um, and six <laughs> years later, we're, and six years later, we're getting close. Um, so, um, so look, we we started working on that, and we discovered lots of things. So, part of the R and D journey, of course, was to discover things, and mm -hmm. we learned a lot about um, the limits of smart contracts. We learned a lot about the challenges in data collection. Um, the limitations around relying simply on um, uh, distributed networks for data integrity if you don't also think about how data is collected and who collects the data. Um, so we started thinking about information systems as supply chains themselves, right? So um, right. we either manufacture data or we collect data. We then um, triage that data. You know, we, we filter it in effect. 
Um, we then um, validate it. We then store it. We then make it available for use, right? And there's this um, production system for data. And a lot of blockchains in the early days were very much focused simply on, on a very narrow range of validation requirements and storage. That was it. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, but it didn't deal with the collection or the manufacturing of data in the first place. And subsequently, of course, there, there's been a lot of discussion around things like oracles and that sort of stuff, sort of off-chain yep. data sources. So um, and we pioneered... Smart Chain Network has its own oracle, which is well, we, to be able to collect we, that's right. with our Yeah, and so what we ended up doing, we, we did our first version. Um, we, we did a couple of test runs. So our first lot of work was actually... Um, done with some partners in China using Hyperledger um, fabric. Um, and that enabled us to ship the first um, blockchain tracked Australian beef into China in early 2019, I think it was, or wow. early 2018. Um, so that was the first implementation of um, these things. And we also explored things like RFID chips, NFC chips, um, and other ways of creating a connection point between the database and the physical objects. We then um, migrated into developing the technologies and the smart contracts uh, to be deployed on the Ethereum public network, the main net. Um, and so all of our work since has been built in an EVM compatible environment. The problems, really that we the problems we encountered in doing that were sort of twofold. Um, one was that uh, gas fees were fluctuating all the time, which right. made it very, which made it really hard in a real world setting where margins and supply chains were very thin but stable. You know, if someone said to me, "How much is it going to cost?" and I can't actually give them an answer to that. Um, yeah, and that's then... exactly the same problem that I ran into with when I first talked to. Um, the first customer we had with Victory XR, they say, how much is it yeah. going to cost, Kango? And I said, well, sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down. It's, it's this price right answer. now. And they're like, how are you expecting me to buy the solution when you can't tell can't, me how much it's going to cost? Can't budget, right? You know, so you, you sit down with the chief financial officer and you say, look, you know, let's do a six-month budget. And you actually can't. Um, so that was the first issue. Um, subsequent to that, we also did some um, concrete tests within our own environment, which I'll describe in a moment, but which showed us that had we undertaken what we did on the public network, it was actually going to be economically unviable for some of the supply chains we were dealing with. The second challenge that we had was that the public networks uh, brought a lot of data security on the basis that, in fact, um, it had a lot of strangers and anonymous nodes um, keeping in alignment, right? um, creating a consensus among strangers. That sounds good. And for game theoreticians um, and others, there's something very sexy about being able to solve those kinds of problems. The problem was that in a real life supply chain environment, many actors actually were very hesitant about data being stored and validated by anonymous strangers with a risk that in fact that data was being stored by potential competitors okay so that's um, right so, so there was a lot of 
um, a recoil to the idea of um, data networks being run by a network of anonymous strangers. So put aside the philosophical arguments about um, distributed ledgers and, yep. and all those sorts of things. I mean, it's not like a one case you one case versus all solution in no. I think in the blockchain world, you know. And I was actually talking to um, um, founder of Matab Lab, which they help Hollywood studios to store all of their props uh, in, in on the blockchain, and they don't want anybody to see them. So ended up yeah. they start using this private chain so how cold so are we, you sir like are you cold out there <laughs> yeah, it's a bit cold um but, uh, but that's what so we sorry. ended up doing um so look, up i'm actually that. i'm actually in my uh, home office which is um, built into the side of a hill so it's actually the coldest part of the house but um oh, yeah. we ended up uh rolling out our own um private chain in the end um in response to those two problems and so we um, deployed so nice free. a proof of authority network. Well, it means that we control whatever the gas really needs to be, which means we gotcha. stabilize the, um, the cost. Um, gotcha. So um, even though at a technical level, the transactions are paid for with a thing called the STN token, um, because we mint the STN tokens, um, we, we can manage this network really as a, as a conventional standard um data storage as a service so, environment <clears throat> got you and so for that for the audience out there that doesn't have uh you know adequate understanding of this because a lot of times what will happen is that people you know we don't have enough information about something and we're like hey why would people use blockchain for it right i just want to read yeah. a paragraph here it's so shocking and i got it off charles linkedin actually so this says for the readers out there it says there are over 45k beef cattle producer across the country in Australia, with a national herd around 27 million heads of cows, heads of cattle. The industry employs about 200k people, and the industry export about 70% of the annual production in its third largest export in the country, in the world, actually, the beef export. And here's a shocking part. The off-farm value of the beef industry from 2017, 2016 to 2017 was 16, almost 17 billion, almost 17 billion Australian dollar. And the value of export was $7 billion. As demanded for beef grow, growing markets like China, the risk of meat fraud and safety increases. A robust credential platform is needed to ensure the reputation and the value of Australian beef industry is protected, as well as the data. I think I read it from somewhere. It says every three gram of beef in China, every three gram of Australian beef in China, one gram wasn't real beef and another gram wasn't really Australian. Yeah, look, there's... Um, uh the food fraud generally across the world is an expensive problem. Um, a, I think it's the PwC report estimates that food fraud is a 50 billion US dollar problem a year. Wow. Um, so Especially in China, because well, I remember- it's across the world. Uh, uh, but, I um, and, it, and it happens in places where we least suspect it as well. So, um, uh, but, you know, in a large economy uh, like China, uh, 
where demand growth was going through yep. the roof and where supply is physically constrained. That's the perfect that's right. environment for two things to happen. One, for prices to go up. Oh. And the minute prices go up, it attracts either efforts to dilute products so that you can, you know, right. bring products that use So India might be the next. Them. Yeah, you know, and, and so the market context drives fraud, right? I see, because um, I remember growing up, there were problems. I grew up in China, and there were problems about food safety back in the day. Yeah. And the government really sure. had to try really hard to, to get rid of them, you know, and it, it was it was a real problem. And a lot of people in America don't think about it, especially my peers. And I tell them about, uh, you know, putting food on the ledger and ensure yeah. food integrity. They're like, oh, but, you know, yeah, not every part of the world has this privilege. Yeah. We, we had exactly the same reaction when we raised this issue around food integrity. Um, a lot of people in Australia um, didn't <laughs> yeah. uh, really appreciate the issues right. involved because uh, here um, uh, the number of reported cases of food safety issues are actually quite low. Um, and so in the public public's mind, um, the, the the risks of food safety problems arising in Australia are actually quite low. That's um, right. So there's just a different context. So context drives right. priority. Um, and you know, now, honestly, as a person who come from a third, well, I wouldn't say a third world country, but a country like China, country. yeah, developing country, uh, you know, experiencing food safety and seeing babies die on the die on on the news, I know that this technology is revolutionary and is saving a lot of people in those countries this is not yeah. just lucrative but it's also helping and saving people in those countries and you know sometimes it's really hard to explain to the westerners very hard but uh, um, but nonetheless yeah. it's, a no, it's a noble work so we focused on that initially um but once we did that work we were then able to take a step back again and generalize our experiences out of one particular supply chain to create a more general purpose set of technologies. And we did that through a few rebuilds, actually. The initial um, smart contract was just one ever-growing piece of code, a single smart contract that got bigger and bigger. Um, and eventually that got pulled apart. Um, into a whole lot of modules and redeployed as discrete functional smart contracts on our network. Um, uh, and, and that was important to do. It enabled a little bit more user friendliness from a development point of view. And also it meant that we could do um, software upgrades and maintenance um, with, with quarantined impacts um, before we pushed out um, some of the new, new versions of things. So, uh, and where that all led us to was ultimately designing a supply chain infrastructure that was really focused around the idea of data integrity in supply chains and mainly focused on, I guess, what I call the asset side of the ledger. So remember I described earlier that supply chains is really a system of flow circuits where money flows in one direction when data about things flows in the other. A lot of people have been very focused around the money side of the, the ledger, you know, whether it's about how we um, can mint our own money, cryptocurrencies, um, stable coins, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's been a lot of focus around the money side. Mm -hmm. 
we've actually been focused on the asset side. We haven't been focused around the money side for a whole lot of reasons. Um, uh, but probably fundamental to all of that is a recognition and a belief that uh, money by itself actually has no value until it's related to something else. 100%. Um, and those something else's are things that human beings find useful or uh, valuable in, in either uh, very fundamental ways, you know, they're things that we need to survive, um, or things that are less fundamental, but nonetheless bring enriched existences because we need them to have enjoyable lives. So if you think of that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, we see value ultimately as being driven by the hierarchy of needs. So money by itself, anything can be money. It's a social convention. It's a means of payment and a means of exchange. Um, but it only means something in the context of the other side of the ledger, okay? Um, so, um, so we focused on the integrity of the other side of the ledger. That's and right. Smart Trade Networks then has developed a series of smart contract tools that enables us to deal with supply chains generically through the application of what is called an REA accounting scheme. So it's resources, events and agents, um, which is a computer science driven supply chain accounting schema that was developed in the early 80s, actually, by some computer scientists and others. Wow, that's long. And, and we adopted it um, and then took out the bits that we wanted to use for this version of the implementation. Um, there's lots of pieces of the REA ecosystem that we've left on the table for the time being because um, uh, they weren't justified for the, for now. They were too expensive to do or the data collection was impractical. And we focused on our ability to essentially register digital assets um, as right. um, either assets in and of their own right or as, in our selfie. Or as digital twins of something in, in the analog world, right? Um, and so from the early days, so this is from 2019, we started using NFTs. Um, we didn't really see them as NFTs per se. We saw them as, I mean, we, we called them in-houses um, digital asset identification certificates. Yep. Um, and, uh, and we've shortened that now to digital asset certificates. But for us, they were important because they actually dealt with a different problem. And the problem was, if we could authenticate the physical product, it still left unanswered a second problem, which is how do we authenticate the fact that the person selling me that product is the legitimate custodian or owner of that product? And in some supply chains, there's actually a lot of grey markets and theft and that sort of stuff. That's so right. I could, I could say to you, you can validate this product on chain. Mm. You can scan the RFID chips or whatever it is, and you can... And you can come to some level of confidence that this product is legitimate. But the question that sits in the back of your mind then is, um, am I the legitimate owner or are you buying hot property? And so we introduced within our own ecosystem the use of NFTs, in effect, as um, certificates of custodianship. So if you were to buy something, not only did you want delivery of the physical products, but you also wanted delivery of the associated Digital, authenticated, right? So you've wow, got the two. Sir, this is 
This is God. fascinating. This is really yeah. fascinating, Warwick. I think I have to get you back for another show somewhere soon. <laughs> but now we're going to get to the most yep. important question for the day. The ultimate yep. battle. Now you have been in Australia. Now you have been to Texas. You've tried a Texas brisket. You've had Australian beef. Which one is better? Texas brisket versus Australian steak? Look, the most memorable thing that I had, I think, was a visit to one of the famous Texas barbecues where I had <laughs> where 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 I had bison ribs. So um so I'll I'll say that it's the bison ribs that were the standout for me um from my visit to Texas. Um <laughs> unique and memorable. I heard um, you guys were eating were having too much brisket that day. Too much meat that day. <laughs> Look, um, even though we did work in the beef supply chain um, uh, and from time to time when we were doing road shows with some of our beef supply partners, we would have to eat a lot of beef for three or four days in a row. Um, oh, wow. I, 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 I must confess um, that uh, I don't actually eat a lot of beef in my normal day-to-day um, -day life. Um, because you uh, eat too much already. Well, I, I like to keep it for special, memorable <laughs> occasions, and um, gotcha. uh, and that way I can appreciate all the things that go into, you know, putting something on in front of you on a plate. Because a lot of work does get put into it, and it's really easy to take all of this for granted. And um, and I think that if you sort of take some of these things for granted too often, yes. um, you lose perspective on the efforts Indulgence. that people go into. And what we have here of... in America <laughs> with sugar, chocolate. <laughs> no one's going to judge you. But yeah, so sir, last question, the real last question. Yeah. Have you ever thought about putting on another chain? Maybe maybe Polygon? Yeah, yeah look, uh, and in oh, fact... That's a good chain. Yep, and in fact, um, we have some tools on Polygon. Um, so we have deployed um, some multi-sigs um, on Polygon um, that, that enables us to support our project partners in their own governance. So our multi-sig, organic multi-sig um, protocol um, uh, uh, helps our project partners build collaborative decision-making systems, which is essentially DAOs. So we do that on Polygon now. Um, we also have some staking tools on Polygon. Um, so, so, cool. um, so the way we use staking tools, um, for in example, is, you know, you stake tokens. So the STN five, we've got STN five is, is one of our tokens and we, and, and it's a membership reward token basically. Um, and so if you've got this token, you can, um, stake it and access other services. So, um, the websites will query your wallet to see whether you've, you've staked STN5s. And if you have, then you can um, access different things in, in that environment. So we already do some things on Polygon and it would be great to bring our supply chain infrastructure into the Polygon ecosystem. So we built, for example, a little demonstration tool that we call Beetle, which is blockchain enabled asset tracking light and easy. And Beetle is a mobile app on iOS and um, an Android. And it's essentially a stripped back version of our more comprehensive supply chain asset tracking tools. 
and it's just a bit of fun, right? Um, where yeah. I can take a picture of, of we call it an asset, but it could be an event, right? Of anything. Just take a photograph, um, write a little description of it, um, and then save that to the blockchain. Now, that little bit of fun you know, tool is really a way of teaching people about blockchain. So I use it really to introduce people to the idea of distributed ledgers um, and also what digital assets and digital asset management means. Now, that little app is actually two clicks of a button or two smart contracts away from being an NFT minter. We just haven't enabled those functions in maybe, the app. Maybe we can work together out of well, something. I think that would be super fun, right? To <laughs> enable that app to um, to be an NFT um, printer maker um, and push an NFT straight onto, say, a Polygon NFT marketplace. Um, I think that that would be a fantastic way of being able to um, bring people on this digital asset management journey, which is what That's we right. use this tool for, right? And I'll give you some really much more grounded examples. You know, there's lots of examples and things like artwork and all that sort of stuff. But I think that there are some other examples where um, social and ecological values can be driven by the way that we use these tools. So we know that in carbon capture, one of the big issues is to be able to um, effectively prove that there was a before and an after. So you look at a, 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 a piece of land and you want to see whether right. or not there were trees on it before and trees after. Yeah. Um, this this tool allows us to take a photograph of of something, and we'll be able um, to know the history of that. And, and then we, you can it wouldn't be changed. It. And then because the and then and, and because it's timestamp, you can prove the two times of these that's photographs. Right. Um, that's actually pretty important, right? And so that's yeah. that becomes because it can be rigged. When the country does those jobs, it can be rigged, right? I think a lot of yeah. countries rig those stuff. So I actually, so, actually recently got certified with the UN RAP process program. So this is well, really fascinating stuff you're well, working on. Imagine, imagine empowering a community to essentially be a third-party validator um, so that um, people who are taking photographs of their urban landscapes um, or when they're on field trips traveling across a country and they're taking photographs, we enable people just to upload those essentially as public records um, of a particular environmental state at a certain time, um, but they own it, right? So that NFT is something that they That's own right. now. Um, and this is something we haven't done yet, but imagine then saying, look, this is a set of, of common digital infrastructure. And if I wanted them to use that, because that was actually a photograph of my land, right? Um, and I want to use that to prove that I've done certain work over a period of time to generate a certain amount of carbon offsets right. and I'm going to create it's, something. Well, there's no controversy. I would then I would then actually pay the people who made those photographs um, for the evidence that they've given me to prove that I've done what I was doing on the farm. Um, and so we start to have a a, a fabric of, of of data commons that supports people's value creating activities um where you've got and and so in effect we all become an oracle each of us becomes part of a social oracle that's network. right um 
you know, you take pictures of buildings, um, you can take pictures of any other assets and you say, look, this is, this is my lived environment. Or you take pictures of a park with trees and playground equipment and other things in it. Um, you get paid for collecting data. You get paid for collecting data um, on behalf of, of the world, you know, uh, and, um, and, and in our case, most of the data we'd, create, we'd collect in the first instance is visual data, right? Um, and, you know, town planners, I think, would find this sort of stuff incredibly interesting right. and useful. Um, you know, before and after and all that sort of thing. Um, so I think we, you know, let the imagination run wild. But if we did something like this on the Polygon network, I think it would be a fantastic um, uh, project that, uh, you know, brings grounded value to to the world of Web3 and, and distributed ledgers. You know, I'm, a, I'm a, we're actually a Polygon partner. I might even be able to hook you up with them and see... You know, there's more things we can do together, maybe. What? Well, let's have a look at that. As I said, our this team has done work on the Polygon network. We like using it for particular applications that we use. Um, and what we actually end up with, um, for instance, in, in some of our websites, is um, an ability to query uh, two networks. So we query the wallet oh, um, that, then, that then... Um, uh, gives permission for the website to query the STN blockchain to deliver information from the STN blockchain. So we actually have a dual wallet or a dual network view. Um, That's right. From one website. Um, so we could do stuff like that as well. I think that would be very, very cool. We'll talk about it offline. Let's talk about it offline. All right. Be respectful like of your plan. time, sir. But <laughs> yo, thank you so much, sir, for coming on to our podcast. Um, and uh, I wish you have a wonderful day. Well, let's catch up again soon. And um, I'm always happy to, you know, find time to talk to, you know, good friends in the US and uh, people who, you know, care about how technologies can be used to, you know, support the, I guess, the ambitions and energies of people around the world to make the world a, a slightly better place tomorrow than it is today.